0: Good afternoon, my friends. Thank you for joining. This is tough stuff. <laughs> this is really, really, it's a hard book to learn. And its lessons are perhaps equally difficult to implement, but it all begins with learning. You know, I'm a, a proud member of the Chabad Movement, and the al Rebbe taught that in order for us to have a healthy and a balanced emotional engagement with our Kodesh Baruch with the Almighty, in order for us to serve God not only with our powers of speech and action, but rather also with one's heart, the journey begins in the mind. And that is to say, when we are able to ingest or wrap our heads around and apprehend mystical and spiritual concepts and then we can ruminate on them until we personalize or identify with them and then when we can personalize the idea we can assimilate into our own lifeblood we can digest it invariably it will filter through into our emotional and from there our communicative and our 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 actions our engagement with those around us. This is very much about Bilvavcha. It's very much about the heart. The entire book that we're studying is called Chovat Halovavot, or the obligations, duties of the heart. But without knowing, without understanding, without being able to have clarity intellectually, it is impossible for us to be able to experience any of this in a raw and emotional way. So the first order of business, and my primary purpose in delivering these classes, is to help myself and you understand. And then as they say, you're on your own. And I'm on my own. Because after we study this together, we all have our own personal journeys. We all have to work on integrating and assimilating these ideas into our everyday reality and the way we behave and interact with the world around us. We've learned that betochen, which is faithful trust in Hashem, is a sum-zero game. It's, it's something that requires absolute total singularity. One has to be focused exclusively on Hashem, on God, the Almighty. If we rely on God and others creating a partnership of sorts, we actually diminish or even truncate the source of our blessings. All of this up until now has been somewhat theoretical. The great Rabbeinu Bechaya is now going to get into the specifics. In addition to the general, all-encompassing theology that if we rely on things other than God, we'll be doomed to fail, we are now going to get into the specifics of what might people rely on and how and why we can be so sure that they're going to fail. I want to begin by just sharing with you the words of Rabino Bahaya, the proof that he offers us from a scriptural source. And then, if I may, I want to share with you what why was difficult for me I want you to be part of this journey. I want you to hear about the challenges I had in trying to understand this because I think that instead of me simply telling you the way I understood it but why I couldn't understand it and how I came to this conclusion, you'll be part of this. We'll do this together. And I think it'll make it that much more meaningful. So Rabbeinu B'chaya now continues and he says, V'im best translated there. and if. And if. Yivtach al If a person will rely on his wisdom, on his smarts. Now, I want, I want to emphasize right away, Rabbeinu bachai doesn't say a person shouldn't use his intelligence. He says, V'im yivtach. If you rely on your intelligence, and there's a world of difference between the two, I think that's obvious but it will be further illustrated as we continue to move forward. So if a person's trust is placed a and on his scheming, craftiness, maybe even deviousness, this bothered me very much. Why does Rabbeinu Bahaya have to mix craftiness? Or devious, deviousness into the mix. I didn't understand that. Then he says, "The Choyach gufoi, the wherewithal that God granted him, the proverbial material or power of his flesh. So a person has material power. And power doesn't necessarily mean muscles, although it can. Power means ability. Power means talent. If somebody has large muscles, they have brute force, they can accomplish what you need brute force for, but if somebody has brute force but no coordination, no finesse, they're probably not going to do well in the field of athletics. They might be a really good mover or a porter. Maybe they'll be good at demolition. But to be able to harness that brute force or physical strength in a way which requires a certain deftness or certain talent, whether it's on the ice or on the baseball field, You need more than just brute force. You need coordination. But let's travel beyond the environs of brute force altogether. Koyach, which literally translates as strength, could be artistic talent, musical talent, it could be emotional quotients. In plain English, it means prowess. And for some people, their prowess is in their biceps, whilst for others, it's in their charisma. Or perhaps in their oratory, the way they're able to manipulate people. And I don't mean manipulate in a negative fashion. Even in English, where manipulation or manipulation has a bad rap, To work with clay or stone is called to manipulate the matter. You know how to work with things. You know how to move a situation in a certain direction. There are people who have talent. Some people are good managers. Some people are good analysts or have vision, a sense of acumen, wits about them. All of this can be termed, it doesn't have to be literal prowess and then he adds the word I guess freely translated means the expending of efforts is something that requires endurance people who are diligent who stick with the program they don't get fired up and fizz out a person who makes diligent efforts would be called a shtadlan, a person who really continues to chip away or try to make a difference. I'm, I'm reading these words I'm asking myself, why? Why complicate things? Why add description? If Rabbeinu Bechaya wants to say that people rely on their wisdom, then, then say it. If he wants to talk about strength, well then, why don't you just use the term gvura? So this bothered me. And the next words bothered me even more. Rabbeinu Bechayah says, if you rely on your smarts and scheming, if you rely on your prowess and diligence, yigah you will toil in vain, or for naught. Now in this very nice new book on Shara Betochen, in a little preface here, and I love the way he kind of breaks things up. It's been helpful to me. He starts off and he says, okay, this is now going to talk about misguided trust. That's correct. He says, Rabbeinu B'chaia is going to bring specific examples of things people tend to place their trust in, and how they do not provide security. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's accurate. Sounds to me like Urbana B'chayi is talking about a lot more than it not providing security. To me it sounds like these are going to undermine your security and your success. Yigal Arik doesn't mean it's not going to be as helpful or effective as you think it might be, it means you're going to be wasting your time. Or possibly worse. Because he says this will be the cause of yechelash koichai. It'll be the cause of your becoming weakened. Meaning you're losing your strength. I'm not sure why that's the case. The last time I checked, when you utilize... A particular muscle, whether it's your brain or your thighs or bicep, it gets stronger. When you leave something and don't use it, well, then it gets decadent. How is al Nebuchadnezzar so certain that yechel hashkei? He doesn't say it's not going to provide security. He says this is going to weaken you. It's going to weaken you. He says... Your schemes will fall short from attaining or reaching their goals. Why? Why, why? why can't the scheme reach its goal? The author speaks here with a sense of surety, a sense of authority. He says, you're going to fail. You're not going to reach your goal. You're not going to get what you set out to attain. I'm thinking to myself, seriously? How many people do you know who are really smart, worked really hard, came up with all kinds of schemes, and succeeded as a result of it? So if you say, well, not everybody succeeded. Some people failed. I say, okay, there's no guarantee, but it's a pretty good idea. <laughs> there's a good chance that this is going to work. It's worked for so many. How can the all be so certain that it's going to weaken you, it's going to be effort expended in vain, and you're going to fall short? It just, this doesn't seem credible. Well, he says, I know it to be so, on faith, because the scripture says so. I want to emphasize something that I spoke about a a few days ago in in a previous episode. The author is breaking such new ground that up until this point, he has not quoted from our sages. He's going back to the scripture itself. He's going back to the verses of prophecy. What does that tell you? It tell you, tells you that the material being talked about here has hardly been dealt with, or not been dealt with at all. Typically, when you have writings of Rishonim, the early sages, or certainly the later sages, they're going to copiously quote the Talmud, the Midrash, <laughs> which are names of different midrashim. The Zohar. He's not even quoting from these sources. It's almost as if nothing in the actual Mishnah or Talmud, nothing in the Gemara or Medrash is going to back up what he's saying. He's got to take you back to the source. Rabbeinu B'chai is telling you that with the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of Torah that he developed, with, with the with the scholarly acumen that he was able to fine-tune that he actually looked at the verses of prophecy and they spoke to him with clarity it's an incredible incredible statement it's it's really remarkable it's almost unparalleled it means that we're talking about subjects that have not or were never previously articulated or developed. That's big. That's that's why this book, and especially this chapter, has remained a classic since it was authored nearly a thousand years ago. All right, so where does he see that in the Scripture? Because, you'll forgive me. Where does he see that in the scripture? And here it gets really interesting. Kamesha Amar Akasov, as the scripture states, and he's taking us now to the prophecies that are found in the book of Job. Specifically, in the fifth chapter, here Eliphaz HaTemani is speaking to Job. And this is really a subject for... (laughs) Another day, the book of Job is a fascinating book. And the figures that appear there are interesting, to say the least. But at any rate, it's prophecy. And it's, it's scripture. And we can take it to the bank. This is God speaking to us. So Eliphaz says to Eov, to Job, who is broken over his suffering and his mourning, he says to him, Lochid, chachamim be'arma. Which literally translates as, He traps or entraps the wise in their own schemes. So people, they're like very clever and crafty, and they create this kind of shrewd plan, and God entraps them in their shrewdness. So I noticed two things. The first is that he quotes a verse that conflates or hyphenates the notion of chachamim and armam, the wise and their craftiness. In other words, the kind of wisdom he's talking about here is crafty wisdom, devious wisdom. I'm not sure I understand that, but it seems to be clear that he's placing the two together. Is that instructive on how he opens? Is the issue that a person relies on Chochmasay, his wisdom only when it's crafty? And the other thing I noticed is it seems like God's out to get this guy, or these people. Say, you think you know what you're doing, eh? I'll show you. I'll fix your wagon. You came with a devious, shrewd and crafty plan. I'll entrap you with the very strategy or with the web that you laid for others. Now, surface, that sounds like somebody who's out to harm others. That's definitely what it sounds like. So if it's about somebody who's out to harm others, what does that have to do with what we're talking about. We're talking about a person who's relying on his wisdom or craftiness, his shrewdness to make a living, for example. The commentary, Tov Halavanon, trying, I think, to answer this very question, he says, HaChachamim SheRotzim LeHitChakeim tehem." The wise... Who seek to sharpen their skills with all kinds of schemes or devious plans? Mi believe without trusting in Hashem, They will be, if you will, tripping or falling, stumbling over those very plans. LaHavi aleim tova. So that they will bring themselves evil instead of good. Wow! I mean, he doesn't say he hurt anybody. Doesn't say he harmed anybody. Doesn't say he was trying to undermine anybody. Why should he get evil? Okay. He didn't have enough Batochen. He, he didn't do it with trust in Hashem. Therefore, he brings home evil. It's really not not making sense to me. When you look in the verse in the prophecies or book of Job itself, of Eov itself, the Mitzuddas David is actually pretty clear about this. He says, Lochayt Chachomim ba'orma means, Bidvar ha'orma asher chashvu laasot lezulat. Let me read more slowly and translate. Bidvar ha'orma by dint of or because of the craftiness, the shrewdness, the deviousness, that asher choshvu, that they schemed or thought, La zulat to do, to somebody else. atzma lo God says, really? You're going to entrap somebody else? You want to use the wisdom, the intelligence, the insight that I gave you to harm somebody else? your scheme is going to backfire. You'll entrap nobody but yourself. That kind of sounds very different than what Rabbeinu B'chai is talking about here. That is the literal meaning of Eliphaz's critique. That's what he's saying to Job. Clearly, the Chovat Halavavot and Shabbatochan see something different here, and I'm asking, what? What is that? How do we understand this? The Malbim has a fascinating commentary in this verse, and I want to share it with you because, well, because it makes the question a little bigger. But he says he gives he, gives, he illustrates this a historic illustration of this very notion. He says. The people, the wise, who select and choose schemes and shrewd or devious kinds of plans, to harm or to hurt, to do bad to others. Hashem says, I'm not going to simply wipe away your scheme. I'm not going to spoil your scheme. Rak instead, rather, yesavev b'ashgachosei, Hashem with His extraordinary divine design, is going to make it boomerang right back at you. You try to poison somebody, you end up eating the poison. You try to trip somebody, you're the one who stumbles. shehichinu be'atzmam the very mechanisms that they set into motion or prepared lahora to bring harm for someone else haim atzmam that itself will be the cause that precisely and exactly the opposite is going to unfold And he gives a historic illustration. The brothers of Joseph. What were they looking for? They were stopping to prevent. were trying to prevent Joseph from becoming a monarch. From ruling over them. Joseph clearly believed that he had a higher spiritual acumen than his brothers. That he needed to be their leader. That he would guide them along the path of this developing reality which would in the end come to be known as Am Yisrael. And the first generation, Ishmael had some very strange ideas and God said, no, no, no. That's not the one. Put your effort and emphasis on Isaac. He is the one through whom I will build this nation. So Abraham very difficult. He has to refocus himself and follow and listen to his wife, Sarah. And Yitzchak becomes Isaac, the second of the patriarchs. In the next generation, there are two front runners. <laughs> They're the only runners Jacob and Esau, Yaakov and Esau. Isaac thinks that Esau has some remarkable capacity. He just has to be harnessed. <laughs> He's just got to be. Directed, Because Yaakov doesn't seem to be able to break out of his mold. And, and to build Am Yisroel and to transform the world, as it were, you can't just be a goody two-shoes. So he is trying to invest in Esav, But Rivka is much smarter. <laughs> well, that's chauvinistic Judaism, right? The first generation, Abraham misses the boat. Sarah is right on the money. Next generation, Isaac totally fails. And the only one who succeeds, in fact, is... I'm sorry, I'm just going to shut this off. In the end, it's Rifka who fully succeeds, right? Let me think about that. And now in the next generation... Things are different. Rachel, the beloved wife of Yaakov, is no longer. There are different mothers. And, if you will, the, the locking of horns is not taking place on a parental level. Now it's taking place within and amongst the children, the progeny of, of Yaakov. Yosef begins, believes, pardon me, that he has the superior vision. Oh, By the way, he's right. He is Yosef Atzadik. He actually understands that holiness is not to be found in isolation, but rather in full engagement. The brothers of Yosef are shepherds. They separate themselves from everybody and anything else. But Yosef, he knows that he can engage, and in doing so, inspire and change. Yaakov understands this. He lived it. He went to Choron, to Lavan's house, and it's where he built the family. Yosef is the one who really gets the essence of his father's spiritual ideas and strategy. The brothers are very holy, but they don't have the ability to see past their orbit. Yosef will lead them. They don't want to be led. They think Yosef is totally misguided. They feel that if he is at the helm of this developing nation, We're going right down the falls. It's going to be a disaster. They actually believe it's okay to kill him. (laughs) Just like mind boggling. I don't want to go there. In the end, in order to stop Yosef's destiny, destiny that he had dreams about, what do they do? They said there's one way we can make sure he'll never be a ruler. He'll never have control over others. He'll never be able to foist his views, if you will, and that's if we take away his freedom altogether. It's called a slave. He's not an independent contractor. He doesn't have his own ideas. He has to simply follow instructions, do as he's told. Now what happens? What happens is Well, a ha teva, by virtue of rhyme and reason, their scheme is brilliant. They don't have to do anything terrible. They don't have to kill him. They sold him off as a slave. They've stripped him of his freedom and eventually ingenuity altogether. And he will simply be a slave for the rest of his life. What happened? Hashem runs the world. Precisely through that sale, through that position of slavery that he sinks into Yosef experiences the most meteoric rise in history Minutes after being pulled out of a prison pit He's appointed the second most powerful man At least in the Western world or Mideastern world, which is the basin of civilization Most powerful country is Egypt Yosef is the viceroy. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm hearing what the Malibu is saying. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. It, it dovetails beautifully into the words of the Mitsudas in his commentary on the book of Job itself. I don't know what that has to do with this business of me doing business. Should I not say, hey, I'm a smart guy. I have some really good business ideas and I'm going to succeed because I'm going to work hard and put those into action. In his explanation of the, the Hebrew verbiage, the Mablam even sets out to define or create daylight between the Chachma and the Orma, between wisdom or smarts and shrewd or devious kind of behavior. And he says there's a hevdal. there's a very big difference between chachamim, wise people, and arumim, cunning people. He says the cunning person, he knows what's wise, he knows what's smart. However, he's cunning, he doesn't present the facts as they are. He's not giving you the real statistics. He is creating statistics. It's not really information. It's not really true information. It's curated in a specific way. Many, many of the statistics that are presented as fact are, in fact, a particular view of the facts. Some are honest many are not. To be sure, we have methods of making a distinction between the honest studies and the dishonest studies, the jaded or shaded studies, and the ones that are actually objective. The ones that first, if you will, shoot the arrow and then draw the target around it are the ones that are actually open-minded and looking for an answer. That's the difference between wisdom and cunning. Cunning sounds wise, but it's actually just devious. Wisdom is looking for the truth, objectively speaking. So, does Rabbeinu Bahaya have a problem with, with smarts? Is he suggesting we make dumb investments and then wait for miracles to happen? Like, what really does this mean? I was further intrigued when I saw that in the commentary of the Pat Lechem he sends us off to some very famous verses that are found in the ninth chapter of the prophecies of Jeremiah. This is one of those psukim, one of those verses that's actually read annually in the Haftorah. In chapter 9, verse 22, Jeremiah says, Ko amar Hashem, this or so, says the Lord. This is what God says. Al <speaking in Hebrew> Let the wise not pride himself for his wisdom. Al <speaking in> ha'gibor <Hebrew> Let the strong not be prideful of his strength. Al <speaking> Ashirba <in Hebrew> Let the rich not be impressed with their wealth. What does this mean? It means, says Rashi, "Al do not be self-congratulatory to say, we're so smart. Because real wisdom is to be found in the word of Hashem, not what they call your own objective ideas. There are many smart people. But ultimately, real wisdom is the wisdom that's found in understanding revelation, understanding and appreciating that we are created in God's image rather than creating a God or deity in our image. The Mitsudis David says, Al-Yatalel goes further than simply not patting yourself on the back. Nafshe b'chach-masa. You can't save yourself with your wisdom, he says. The mighty cannot become the master of their own destiny or save themselves through their own strength. And the wealthy can't redeem themselves. And so, ain't lahem lahit halel, there's no reason for them to self-congratulate or be prideful. Layavi, lahem oz toyeles, they'll have no, no value, no virtue. It's these things alone that cannot save you. The Pat Lechem brilliantly suggests that what Rabbeinu Bachiah does here is speak about the three details or dimensions that Jeremiah identifies prophetically wisdom, strength, and wealth. At first, he speaks about wisdom and strength. Both of these are prowess or faculties that a person has rather than possessions one has amassed or financial wherewithal one has at their disposal. And he says, first he speaks about let a person not trust his wisdom or his strength. And the Paslechim says Rabbeinu Bachaya didn't leave it just at wisdom, but he added tachbulis of his scheming. He didn't leave it simply at koach, at power, but he added his his efforts. And in the language of the Talmud, he says this is shtaim shehein arba. This is a two-dimensional, which actually provides four dimensions. Two that divides into four. He says, wisdom can be helpful. Intelligence is a good thing. It's a tool. A person can reach something by virtue of when he uses it in its simplicity, without being devious, without being twisted, without scheming. He says, for example, wisdom is not only book knowledge, A person can have an ability to do something. Music is a form of wisdom. Making music, making art is a form of of wisdom. Being a wordsmith and knowing how to use words to be able to convey things either through writing or oratory, all of this is a form of wisdom. As the expression goes in the Gemara, Choch it's talent, it's not force. It's not just power, it's knowing how to harness. It's knowing how to essentially channel the, fa- the power of force that you have. Otherwise, the power is just overwhelming. That's what's so good about semiconductors, because semiconduction allows us to control the force of electricity. <laughs> All of technology of the last 70 years has risen and fallen on our ability to semiconduct, our ability to harness, to channel without being overwhelmed. That's a wisdom, he says. That's, that takes great wisdom. But he says when a person... When a person thinks to himself, you no, know, I can do things wisely and it might work, or I can be devious about things, I can choreograph things. I can actually control the narrative. So he's not just doing things intelligently, he's doing things deviously. Ah, he says, now you have crossed the line. Now you're actually relying on your wisdom. Rather than simply doing that which you must. And the Paslechem says, yeah, Yigalarik. Yigalarik means that the assumption will be, Stam Hadover. You must assume that if somebody gets devious about things, Yigalarik, all the deviousness is going to be a waste of energy. says, even though he has sharpened his smarts, he's got a razor-sharp idea. He's devious. He's created a real scheme. The scheme will come to naught. He will not succeed by virtue of the scheme with a devious and shrewd approach. How so sure, Well, he says because there's a pasuk that says al He says Zera Ayah. This is a proof on Saga. This is a proof on overshooting or not getting what you wanted, not actually succeeding in reaching your goal. Because when wisdom devolves into deviousness then it does not bring success. I don't understand. why. Is, is the problem relying on wisdom? Does it have to be devious? What does he talk about deviousness for? Something's not adding up to me. I, I, I understood clearly that Rabbi B'chayev believed that trust in Hashem is singular. Absolute. So if I trust my own intelligence I'm not having betochen if I say for example of course I'll make a living I'm smart I can always find something else to do That I'm not having betochen betochen means I know everything comes from Hashem so should the person who has business acumen not use his business acumen I understand that being devious and trying to harm somebody is inappropriate. I get that. God says, you try to entrap people, back at you. How does that fit into this notion of betachen? That seems to be a critique of bad behavior. Or Hashem saying to you, I'll ensure that just deserts will come your way. You'll get treated the way you treat others and that which you do to harm others, will ultimately be a self-inflicted wound. I can understand that. I don't know what this has to do with betachen. So I did a lot of thinking and a lot of researching and I think I understand it now and I want to share I want to share the results of what I found with you. So I'm going to begin by sharing with you a statement which is made in the Gemara. And by virtue of of this statement. I think this is going to be able to open doors for us. The Gemara HaMasechet Shabbat on page 32. The Gemara speaks about people being in trying circumstances, proverbially being judged, and needing Hashem's special mercy at a time when they are endangered. The Gemara goes on to say that when somebody is going to be in a dangerous situation, and the example that the Talmud gives is a rickety bridge. So the Gemara says that when you talk about crossing raging waters, be it on a rickety bridge or, for example, on a leaky boat, make sure you're safe. This is just like basic precautions. The Gemara says... Rabbi Yanai, he would first inspect the watercraft before he crossed the lake or the river. He'd make sure there's no hole. I guess that's a good idea. So the Gemara says, why did Rabbi do that? I don't know. I can tell you why he did that. <laughs> he did that because he didn't want to get hurt. The Gemara is getting at something, though. The Gemara says, The Omar, because Rabi Anayi said, A person should never, ever put himself in a dangerous place. Well, why not? If Hashem runs the world, if something's bad supposed to happen to me, it's going to happen to me anyway. And if something isn't supposed to happen to me, then it's not going to happen to me. Why shouldn't I put myself in a dangerous space if I live with betachin, total trust in Hashem. Ah, Rabbi Anai says, this is because. Loimar is if to say, a person shouldn't say, I'm on a different network. God takes care of me. Because if a person does that, he's taking a risk. Shema Maybe a miracle won't happen for him. How do you know miracles are going to happen for you? can't rely on miracles. In the language of our sages, you cannot rely on this. And Rabbi Yana says, even if a miracle does happen for you, you're not laughing all the way to the bank. In fact, you spent much that you didn't have to. He says, and if a miracle will happen to you, so in that case, you feel vindicated, And says, don't be so sure. Then your merits are going to be subtracted to pay for the miracle that just occurred for you. Why? Why does God have to, if he wants to do a miracle for you, why does he have to subtract from your merits? So the Maharal of Prague explains it like this. He says, the merits engendered through holy activities, be they charitable or prayerful or studious, The performance of mitzvot are beyond the realm of the world in which we live, beyond what we will call the limitations of nature. So, therefore, a person is able to benefit from the energy engendered through mitzvahs, not in this world, which is governed by nature, it seems, but rather in a world when nature has no hold. However, if a person says Maharal is going to receive an infusion of supernatural reality in the midst of nature what happens is that he has to have he has to have that miraculous nature paid for so to speak so the reward of the mitzvah is only in a world that has no limitations limitations of nature but if you bring that kind of energy into nature, or shatter nature, well, then that's where your merits ended up going. You don't spend your merits in this world because this world is a place of nature. And those merits, or that energy, generally doesn't make it or get lost in our realm. Let me share with you the words of the Alta Rebbe. In a fascinating mimer that was delivered in the year 1805, the Altarebbe begins this mimer by asking some very basic questions. He says, it is written, God will bless you in anything that you do. So the says, I don't understand. If it's God's blessing, why do you have to do anything? Why do you need a Haasik? If it's God's blessing, it'll come by itself. It's God's business of how to get you a living. A computer glitch will put money in your bank account. Why do you have to do anything? With no effort, it'll come your way. Why is Hashem only blessing you if you make the effort? There's a a fascinating thesis that gets developed in this Hasidic discourse, and it's beyond the purview of, of the next couple of minutes that I have. But if I may, to simplify, the Altar explains how the world in which we exist, the realm in which we presently are populating, we have God's concealment. In order for our world to exist in its limited way, God's energy has to be entirely concealed or covered similar to what we spoke about several episodes ago about the notion of Havaya and Elikim. Different realms of divinity, if you will, or different personas of the divine. The miraculous and the natural. The overt and revelatory or the concealed and the hidden. So the world in which we live by divine design is limited and conceals the creator altogether. In fact, the world Olam Shares a common root with the word helem. World means concealment in Hebrew. So in order for God's blessings to come into this world, there has to be a mechanism that can fully camouflage and conceal them. And the mechanism is what's called in the language of Lurianic Kabbalah, Lvush Sak, a thick kind of burlap. A curtain that entirely disables you from seeing. Hamaster ligamri. It entirely covers the fact that God is providing sustenance at every single moment. Much like nuclear physics entirely covers God's tracks. And you say, well, it's, it's physics. <laughs> it's, it's energy. Just came out of nowhere. Only in this world can we have a profusion of atheists. Or people who can explain rationally and cogently how there is no prime source for all of existence. And so that idea filters its way through every level of our existence, including the notion of Hashem's brachas coming to us, that they must come in a manner of material concealment. And so when people have to go to make a living, they will necessarily have to have their parnasa or their sustenance come to them in a the manner that seems entirely devoid of God's blessings. The concealment, the camouflage is complete. It's in this levushsaq. Adshallay he until such point that it's entirely not noticeable. Lamata, it's not known in our world, but Who is giving me this parnasa? It's my intelligence. I know why I made a living. I worked hard. I was devious. I was crafty. I used my intelligence and that's why I succeeded. Maybe I wasn't crafty. I'm just talented. I'm just really good at what I do. That's what it seems like. God makes it seem that way. It looks to you that that which you receive is mitzad atzmai. It looks as if you have earned your bread. It looks that it has everything to do with your acumen and your effort. It's koi choy, your strength, that all this came to you. And a person, by going through the motions of actually creating the mechanism through which the blessings of a livelihood can come, is creating or replicating that divine design of concealment. And so the business is always going to have to look natural. Of course you're going to have to make intelligent investments. If you made dumb investments and prospered, it would be obvious that God is doing a miracle for you. It doesn't work that way. As Maharal said, if we force the hand of God or necessitate miracles, even if we get what we were looking for, we're going to be paying for that. Nothing is for free. What's required is that you need to create the kind of mechanism that will seem as if it's entirely your doing. <laughs> it, no matter what you're doing, what, what your efforts are, it will be possible for you to say, I did this. <laughs> the person who makes good smart investments created a good business strategy was successful a person who makes foolish business investments and doesn't plan his business smartly it has to look that way but the altar rebbe says it's actually not so really, and it's all in Hashem's hands and if one is open-eyed and honest, you will see that the real reason is ultimately the blessing of Hashem. Elohim the name of God, which represents Hashem's involvement in our world, is in the gematria, the numeric equivalent of the word Hateva, which comes from the word or ideal of concealed. Covered over. In the words of the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, in his famous work called Kuntur he says, you have these business people. They're involved all the time in their work. That's all they're doing. They're not doing anything wrong. They're not violating the law. They just invest every ounce of creativity and wherewithal and every moment of their time into their business. And they have, after all, a mission to rely on Yafatal Torah study is beautiful when it's accompanied by your own work. It's what you're supposed to do. However, says the Rebbe Rashab, yes, bazakama shtusim. There is tremendous folly attached to this, to this wisdom, and that comes from the Yetzirah, who turns a person away from his Creator, and that's the notion of ribui hatirda. Tremendous worry and anxiety. Well, how am I going to make a living? How is this going to work? Anxiety that literally disables a person from functioning. It worries him. It eats him alive. Day and night. So much so that he cannot study Torah. So much so that he's not capable of praying or coming to Shul daven with a minion. Or so he thinks. Because I have to make a living. Shemidame ebnafshei. That he actually fools himself or deludes himself into thinking that if I will not waste my time babbling with a minion because I don't have the time but I'll put the time into my business then I will succeed. If I won't waste my time quote unquote studying Torah then I'll have success. Ube'emes and in truth says the Rebbe zuhi shtus this is an extraordinary stupidity. Stupidity. Because there are so often times when people will spend enormous amounts of effort and time they come up empty-handed. And that's the times when a small amount of effort will yield tremendous results. What would you call that? Lucky? Coincidence? Those are both code names for God's blessings. The more you forget about Hashem, the less you're going to receive the parnosa that you could rightfully have attained. In other words, the more you are going to ignore God, the, the more you block your blessings. Of course you should do things intelligently. Hashem wants us to make efforts that are wise and smart because that's what Torah says. In the words of the Rebbe in, Lekut Asichus, in volume 31 on page 173, the Rebbe says that despite the fact that it is the blessing of Hashem that makes one wealthy, this blessing cannot be attained or take root in a person Kashahu Yoshiv bottle when he sits with folded hands. he has the sacred duty, the responsibility that Torah places upon him. La sot, you must make an effort. You must do something about this. Hashem will bless you. Bahala However, at the same time you have to know your work is but a vessel. All of your efforts are not the reason for your success. They are only the vehicle through which success comes. It's through this that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving you your blessings. Hashemus arranged a world of nature. And a world of nature means it has to look like parnasa. like sustenance comes to you because of your intelligence. Because you worked wisely. But wise working doesn't mean to kill yourself working or to detract or subtract from your spiritual activity until all you are is just the person who functions on a business level seeking an extra dollar. And because one should not view the business efforts themselves as the source of success, but rather only the pipeline through which those blessings are coming. So then you know that that pipe has to be clean. Obviously, don't set up a pipeline that's leaking. Make it as airtight as you can. Check the boat, said Rabbi Yana, And then? And then you know that it's Hashem who carries you. is not only because a person's blessings will come through the notion of nature but when a Yid does the natural means and knows that that's not the source of the success but instead has betochen the Rebbe says something unbelievable then you are able to receive miraculous blessing Without paying the price. Because it assumes a natural persona. It looks like everything came because of your hard work. But that's only when you remember and know where the source of your success is. The only reason I need to work smart is because Hashem told me to. Because he wants the blessings to come through that mechanism. But that work is not the source of success ever. Now think back to the words of Rabbeinu Bechaya smart? Of course. Devious? Scheming and deviousness is only because I think that that's the source. If a person relies on his wisdom When do you rely on your wisdom? When you're looking at things in a devious crafty way You're not doing things smartly, intelligently You're not behaving in a manner which is cogent You're saying I can only be successful because I'm doing these things You're actually wasting your time All of that craftiness is not going to earn you one more dollar. Because your blessings don't come through your efforts. They come from Hashem. They pass through your efforts. Your wherewithal, your talent and ability, whatever talent and ability Hashem gave you, you're supposed to marshal and use. Endless effort. You make the appropriate effort. And the appropriate effort is that there's time for prayer and for Torah study. Even if it's only a short time. Because ultimately, that's what this is all about. As the Rebbe Maharash says in that mimer that we spoke about earlier from the year 1866, the spring of 1866, he says, What is the meaning of the words in the Mishnah? That a person should have his Torah study should be permanent and, and your work only transient. He says it means that a person should devote himself so to speak on a qualitative level. It may mean quantitatively that you're studying Torah for a short amount of time but that's where my blessings are coming from. That's the source of my success. If Hashem necessitated for me to work for a larger amount of time that doesn't mean that My success or blessings come from that work. It still is coming from the same source. (laughs) The Rebbe metaphorizes, he says, for one to think that business is the result or the efforts of business and the acumen of business and the scheme of business is the result of one's success, is to think that sewing sturdy pockets fills your pockets with money. You need to have sturdy pockets or the money falls out but the money has to be placed there by someone. My friends, that someone is our Barhu. Baruch Hu. That's the meaning of Betochen. Betochen means that we are mindful and we know where our success comes from. And when you know where your success comes from, and when you commit yourself to serving Hashem and living the kind of life that He ordained for you, then my friends, your efforts will not be in vain. Your toil will not be for naught. You won't miss the goal because that is what it's really all about. To be continued, thank you so much for joining and have a beautiful day.